Good morning, I'm Rocky Yatsu and this is Critics in Coat Check, your weekly arts podcast exploring points of entry into arts and the world, the market, and sharing perspectives of African diasporic artists and producers in this space. So today is a bonus episode. I'm here hosting alone. Merlin and Zen are traveling, enjoying spring break nursing sickness and getting over the hump of transitioning into the season. So it's just me today. And I'm going to be adding an addendum to the conversation that we started last week on language. I went home on my train ride and I felt like there was so much more for us to discuss and think about when it came to language. I know when we discussed it the first time, We came up with the ideas about slang and the use of language in popular culture, the co-optation of language in popular culture, and really didn't get an opportunity to get into language as it's used as material for artistic production. So the words and intonation itself being a form of artistic production. So naturally, I went home and I had all of these ideas about how I could represent this for you all in examples. And I would say, and I will say, my first introduction to art is through literature. So naturally, literature and the literary tradition presents the opportunity to see how this plays out. So I'm really excited to start thinking about what really is the role of language in artistic production and what can it mean for our visual, performative, and dance traditions if we took language seriously as an artistic practice. So I think one of my favorite poets and writers that does this is Kamal Brathwaite. He's a Caribbean scholar and poet from Barbados. Um, An amazing, amazing person, immensely educated, probably has like three PhDs, probably writes poetry in his sleep. Um, But he came up with a really interesting idea called nation language. And this was the opportunity, he says, to transcend and to heal and to really take fragmented parts of culture that are dispossessed through people, right? Words that we say, uh, gestures that we use, uh, pauses that we take culturally and weaving them into a narrative that can tell us a little bit more about Caribbean life in particular. He does this in such a lucid and exciting way and in a way that I think really helps us understand language as art, but could potentially also mean a lot for the use of this type of material for visual production. So let's listen to a bit of Kamal Brathwaite. Why don't we listen to Calypso? The stone had skidded, arced and bloomed into islands, Cuba and San Domingo. Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Grenada, Guadalupe, Bonaire. Curved stone hissed into reef, wave teeth fanged into clay, white splash flashed into spray, Bathsheba, Montego Bay, bloom of the arcing summers. The islands roared into green plantations ruled by silver sugar cane, 
Sweat and profit, cutlass profit, islands ruled by sugar cane. And of course it was a wonderful time, a profitable, hospitable, well worth your time, when captains carried receipts for rices, letters, spices, wigs, opera glasses, swaggering asses, debtors, vices, pigs. Oh, it was a wonderful time, an elegant, benevolent, redolent time. And young Mrs. P's quick, irrelevant crime at four o'clock in the morning. But what of Black Sam with the big splayed toes and the shoe-black shiny skin? He carries bucketfuls of water cause his ma's just had another daughter. And what of John with the European name who went to school and dreamt of fame? His boss one day called him a fool and the boss hadn't even been to school. Steel drum, steel drum, hit the hot calypso dancing. Hot rum, hot rum, who going stop this bacchanaling? For we glance the banjo, dance the limbo, grow our crops by maljo. Have loose morals, gather corals, father our neighbor's quarrels. Perhaps when they come with their cameras and straw hats, sacred pink tourist from the frozen north, we should get down to those white beaches where if we don't wear breeches it becomes an island dance. Some people doing well while others are catching hell. Oh, the boss gave our Johnny the sack though we beg him please, please to take him back. So the boy now migrating overseas. I love that poem. And it's really not because I paid attention to any of the words, but it's really because I listen to it as if it's music, right? And it, it sounds to me like a song almost, where the words are not as important as his intonation, the conversation with Jason Moran that I think enunciates this idea so exquisitely. The newest composition I have ever heard is the freshest. It takes the most beautiful risks. It layers the most wonderful sounds, but it also, like, totally dominates your ear. He took care of the sound and the space in each environment that he created. Um, and so I always, when I walk into spaces, you know, many of these galleries and many of these museums are very lofty ceilings with stone floors and, you know, and parallel walls and so sound is just like shoots everywhere um and at your show the ecm show that oak we did at house de kunst i walked in and and i was so thrilled that you decided to take care of the sound that ecm recorded by by realizing what the floor needed to be you know the floor needs to be carpeted to kind of muffle the sound in a way or how like Ginny C. Jones makes these these panels, these sound panels that go on the wall because they are active, you know? Um, and in that, so I'm always kind of curious about, because it's once an artist makes work with sound, sound like travels in a way, you know, like I could hear something from outside and not know what it was, you know? I mean, I think the best example I remember so clearly of this phenomenon was was going to see Bruce Nauman's retrospective at MoMA maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, whenever this was. Mm. And, and I heard something like four galleries away, like I think he has like this carcass of this calf 
and it would at one point as it rotated it scraped across the floor and I was like what the fuck is making that sound three galleries away you know and 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 I was like drawn and pulled and pulled and then I finally got to see what was making this sound but it's a it's a really delicate balance but it's also one that that if being naive you also have the possibility of un you know unlocking entirely new kind of uh, categories yeah now that's an exciting idea, right? It's being able to approach a new field and unpack it in a way that those that are skilled cannot do, right? And it's in the opportunity to say that if you are approaching the use of sound or approaching the use of a new work or a new layer in your artistic process, that the opportunity to innovate can be heightened by the fact that you don't know exactly what you're doing yet. And that's, that's exciting. And it's, I think, a very generous definition, particularly when I think of artistic practice and production, there's so much skill and emphasis placed on the labor that is used to make a particular thing. Now, Jason spoke a little bit about his background, right? He funnily said he came from a household where he could curse like Richard Pryor and play tennis like Arthur Ashe. And so he came from a middle-class Chicago background that used a lot of black civil rights, black artistic, black creative influences to educate him on the knowledge of the types of work that were important um, at the time. And so he talks a little bit about how his artistic background gives him and informs his use um, and his philosophy on how music and sound can be used in new ways. I would say He's one of the most avant-garde artists that we have today. So I was really intrigued by how he used language as music. And I'll play a snippet of the composition so we can listen. Well, I, you know, how has this affected the, you know, the, the language of your own composition um, um, as a composer? Do, do those things filter or bleed into your own work? The kind of sounds, of everyday sounds that you you hear the right. kind of compositions that artists make. Sure. You know, again, this notion of skilled amateurs. Um, are these the kind of things that you've incorporated into your own work? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, mean, I have recordings I'll probably demonstrate right now. There's a, there are some pieces that... Can I you can, do that? Can I you? will. Okay. There's a piece uh, when I was focusing on Adrian Piper for this Walker Art Center commission, and she says something about the kind of the role of the artist that just just struck me but then I wanted to hear how she would sound if I played her um, so I'll play, play her artists ought to be writing about what they do and what kinds of procedures they go through to realize a work what their presuppositions in making the work are and related things if artists intentions and ideas were more accessible to the general public, I think it might break down some of the barriers of misunderstanding between the art world and artists and the general public. I think it would become clear the extent to which artists are just as much a product of their society as anyone else with any other kinds of vocation. Artists ought to be writing about what they do and what kinds of procedures they go through to realize a work, what their presuppositions in making the work are and related things. If artists' intentions and ideas were more accessible to the general public, I think it might 
break down some of the barriers of misunderstanding between the art world and artists and the general public. I think it would become clear the extent to which artists are just as much a product of their society as anyone else with any other kinds of vocation. That was one of the most exciting things that I heard in a long time. I literally transferring language into composition. And he talks a little bit about how this has affected the visual production and the artists that have approached him based on the work that he's done. I mean, like, like language, language, language as music. I think, you know, if you think about somebody really like in your face like I, as much as I'm trying to like oh you know like don't yell at me anymore I'm also thinking wow that's like an amazing melody you just you just yelled um, and then to wake people up to that that possibility that this sound you know or these words or these cadences or how we speak or our intonation or where you're from what neighborhood you're from how that shows up in your voice but it also shows up in here and it also shows up in how musicians improvise whether it's John Coltrane or Miles Davis or Thelonious Monk, all these people, their inflection comes out of their hands. And so whether we decide, you know, this is just abstract or whether we decide it's actual language that they're saying and that there's actual code involved, which I'm a believer of the code, yeah. um, that's a thing that's depending on how far we want to read into the sounds we actually come into contact with. Yeah, I mean, it's... So the idea that where we're from shows up in the things that we create, in the music that we play, in the paintings that we draw, in the sculptures that we make. That idea is an interesting one because it changes the way we understand how artists may be producing work. It takes something very abstract and it makes it into a set of words, a set of codes, as he says, that could potentially give us an idea of what someone is communicating individualistically, but also what a group of people from the same area may be saying. And that's a way that I haven't thought about artistic production in a long time, again, because I was so concerned about the skill and the labor that it took to make a particular work. I forgot to think about how the artist was showing up in their work through the symbols or the inflections, as he says, and creating a language that could communicate what they had to say about the world that was unique to them. For me, it's, it's really, you know, fantastic to, to, to hear this interaction, this collaboration between you and Adrian Pipe. It's almost like a call and response type of thing. Yeah. But you know, but very, very highly modulated. It's it's it's, it's working within a certain kind of controlled environment, mm -hmm. and and 
so it seems that you you, be, you know you are almost the go-to composer mm. for quite a number of artists recently John Jonas <coughs> Adrian Piper Stan Douglas the recent piece uh, Luanda Kinshasa with, with Stan Douglas and in each of these collaborations um, you know you've been sort of mining if you will um, uh, a certain aspect of what we could call the American you know song mm. book mm. Um, you know talk a little bit about why you know you, your fascination with artists and why they come to you and what you get out of that you know one part was is simply about context uh, that how we listen in various contexts they, they change they shift things we decide to turn off uh, as we listen and and in the past I guess say 10 years or so working with the people that you mentioned that I start to become really conscious of the of the context the spaces that we are all are sitting in um, and where the music sits um, so people like Joan Jonas all of a sudden didn't make me realize okay our first piece together we did at Dia Beacon you know maybe eight nine years ago um, she's like okay well let's look at the the Midwest you know the rural Midwest and it's the, you know, like, so that's like the American songbook, but, you know, she's like, listen to these pieces. So she sends me like 400 pieces to listen to, to, tie, to digest, <laughs> and then whittle it down to something that I think will come out of just the piano, you know, where generally there's people singing and playing a guitar or something. And, uh, and in those relationships, what she also is looking for, she's not looking for the, the recreation of that sound. She's looking for this total different filter, um, that will then kind of activate her in a way, whereas she becomes like a person who responds to the sound. So in all of our pre, uh, collaborations after that, it's as much about the sound, which then then allows her to then, she responds to that and then decides to move. I just remember very clearly one day in our rehearsals when she, she hadn't moved into the space yet, and this was like m kind of just getting to know Joan Jonas, she hadn't quite moved into the space. She was like, let's look at this video, let's move this prop here. And I was still just playing, just trying to find some sounds. And then she decided, okay, I'm gonna go in. So she put on a piece of paper <laughs> and she walked out into the space. And then I watched her and it was like the best thing to happen because now I understood the weight of a person entering the space, now responding to the music. and. So context, of course, is very important. Context is something to consider when we are making analysis of anything, right? And when we are hoping and seeking to understand anything, context is, of course, one of the first things that he discusses. But I think something that didn't wasn't immediately clear the first time I listened to this was the immense amount of patience that it takes to create work and transfer work between mediums in this way. So what he's discussing is taking songbooks, turning them into compositions that that are then be turned into sound panels to be installed into an exhibition that he did at Dia Beacon. And even this transferring of work from one medium to the next says something about the language that is either gained or lost. What is able to be communicated when we change something from a folk song to a musical composition to a soundscape that is installed as a work. And so that's, that's also something to consider that I didn't initially when I heard this 
conversation. And I mean, Jason is is an amazing, amazing composer um, and a really great example of someone who is using visual arts to engage his artistic production in really intriguing ways. And so I, this is all I wanted to add. I know that we had a conversation about uh, slang and vernacular uses and the difference in communication in different parts of the world. But I really wanted to use this episode to give us examples of language as it's used as material, both in literary form, musical form, and thus, of course, visual form as well. So I hope you enjoyed. I'm going to leave us with one of Jason's favorite composers, who I'm also learning a lot about, who has said that silence is one of the best uses of language there is. A really interesting uh, jazz artist that uses silence and what is not said to really structure the work and compositions of his music that I think could hold really interesting little nuggets of truth for us all. So enjoy, and I will join you again next week on episode four with my other co-hosts. Thank you so much for listening. Thelonious Monk is the most important musician, period, (laughs) in all the world, period. The one who I heard when I was 13 that made me want to become a pianist. The musician, the pianist who was able to blend all the histories of future generations of pianists and past generations of pianists. Thelonious Monk. uh... (laughs) Hey, Jason, hold up a second. I've got to introduce this episode. This is Jazz Night in America. I'm Christian McBride. And if it's not clear by now, this episode is about Jason Moran playing Thelonious Monk. All right, back to Jason's love letter to Monk. Uh, Thelonious Monk is, is the musician who knew how to use space as composition. That's our bonus episode. Thank you so much for listening. 
Join us again next week for episode four, where we'll talk about movement, spirituality, and dance with some special guests. This is Critics and Code Check. I'll see you all next week. Peace. Thank you.